It's Wednesday, the 8th of January, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, has the United States misjudged Iran? Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. President Trump's attempt at forcing Tehran to bend to his demands has failed. And as millions flood the streets to mourn the killing of a top general, it seems war may be closer than ever. Plus, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen arrives in London today, but don't expect any post-Brexit trade breakthroughs. And is dry January really the answer to a New Year's hangover? I'm Ben Rylan in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. As officials in Iran's government reacted to an attack carried out by the U.S. that killed the nation's top general, the country's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, told the government that Iran's response must be a direct and proportional attack on American interests. There can be little debate that the death of General Qasem Soleimani has dramatically raised the stakes in tensions between the United States and Iran. But for Iranians... The feeling that war may be imminent is all too familiar. I think it's one of the oldest continuous civilizations of the Middle East. It has 3,000 years of of history, 2,500 continuous years of of kingship. I think that the idea of Iran as a nation bound together by its language and culture is is one of the oldest uh, in the world. Azadeh Moaveni is a journalist and author of Iranian Origin. She's been covering Iran and the Middle East for about two decades, and she's seen several moments where war has felt like it could erupt at any moment. I think that idea of being bound together, you know, as a, as a coherent people um, is something that is really key to understanding uh, the Iranian nationalism that we see today, but also, uh, you know, a nation that has been very much on the receiving end of, of a continuous, continuous waves of, I think, American Western interventionism in the 20th century. I think people are, are furious. They're humiliated. They're angry. I think they don't understand why, as a country of 80 million people and such a you know, sophisticated, skilled population. One of the kind of historically most pro-American, pro-Western societies in the Middle East is, you know, facing this kind of relentless uh, American hostility. So I think, you know, strangely, though, it's it's been a moment that's unified Iranians, um, bringing them uh, behind a government that even just a month and a half ago, they were out in the streets protesting. There was an incident in 1988 where the US Navy famously shot down an Iranian passenger plane. This is a CBS News special report. From CBS News headquarters in New York, here is Susan Spencer. There has been a dramatic and sudden escalation of hostilities in the Persian Gulf involving U.S. forces. There is the possibility that U.S. Navy missiles may have accidentally shot down an Iranian civilian airliner. Can you explain what effect that had on the way Iranians saw the United States as a foreign power? That incident is very much etched into the Iranian psyche. It's I remember growing up hearing about it. It was it was unconscionable to Iranians that President Reagan pardoned uh, the the captain and and the military servicemen involved in that. I mean I think we understand it uh, as a as a terrible mistake. Um, but the fact that you know those who had brought down. 290 people, you know, killed that many civilians. It was it was just seen as, you know, a terrible moment where 
this enmity with Iran, this kind of unfathomable enmity had had created so much destruction. It was almost like uh, Iran's MH17. It was. I mean, I think to Iranians, I mean, if there's, you know, two events that are just, you know, etched in the consciousness, the kind of the prism through which everything else is viewed, it's the Iran-Iraq war, the eight years in which Iran fought a very lonely war when the West and, and essentially all of the countries of the Arab world, except for Syria, uh, fought against Iran. They supplied, you know, the, the West, Germany supplied chemical weapons to the Iraqis that Saddam Hussein used against Iranians. It's this war that many of those alive today that, you know, General Soleimani etched his his sort of war hero career in, uh, along with that that shooting down up of the airliner that you say, um, I think reflective both of this kind of very personal like animus that, that Iranians perceive the United States as having for them. And then at the same time, Iran's uh, sense of, of, of being punished, of being isolated in, in a way that, that is unfathomable to people. The U.S. has been quite quick to remind everyone of the atrocities committed by General Soleimani, either directly or indirectly. Judging by the crowds gathering in the streets for his funeral this week, he was seen quite differently at home. He was. I mean, at home he's seen as the the war hero who kept the ISIS threat from spilling across the borders into Iran. I mean, ISIS, we have to remember, was a genocidal group that not only targeted Yazidis, but uh, had a campaign of genocide against Shias. Iranians certainly perceive him, and and I think others do too. Iraqis, Kurds, as 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 pivotal to pushing back ISIS as it was marching across Iraq in 2014. But I think we also have to remember that in Afghanistan against the Taliban, in this ISIS campaign that I'm talking about, indirectly the United States also was working alongside uh, General Soleimani. So you know the United States has been on the same side as him essentially in in lots of theaters, uh, and that's why this is just such an extraordinarily you know reckless and, and stupid move by Washington. Well, there are those who will say that this is just another step in worsening relations between the US and Iran and that President Trump's aggressive tactics will surely only continue from here. Do you think the United States and the wider network uh, surrounding the US and its involvement in Iran, do they have enough of a grasp on the national character of Iran and the everyday Iranian for this to ever come to a better end? I think certainly not under this administration in Washington that sees Iran through a very ideological lens uh, that doesn't really align with rational American strategic interests. Um, I think President Trump is surrounded by uh, neocon thinkers who've wanted to go to war with Iran since 2003, when John Bolton said to Iran that Iran was next. Um, I think that they have done their best to blow up the prospect of further diplomacy around the nuclear deal. And I think that they led President Trump to this moment on the assurances, the false assurances, that under enough pressure uh, that Iran would collapse and people would rise up against the system, which as we see clearly uh, has not been the case. Yesterday, dozens of people were killed during a stampede as crowds numbering in the millions gathered to farewell General Soleimani in his hometown of Kaman. Meanwhile, Iran's foreign minister claimed that he was denied a visa required for him to attend an upcoming meeting of the United Nations Security Council in New York. Iranian state media reports that the nation's parliament passed a bill defining top military leaders at the Pentagon as terrorists. U.S. embassies in both Israel and Saudi Arabia have issued warnings to Americans to prepare for the possibility of an attack. (laughs) 
At the end of this month, Britain will, almost certainly, become the first country ever to exit the European Union. The details surrounding that mammoth divorce agreement will be top of the agenda today, as the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, arrives here in London for talks with the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. But don't expect any breakthroughs. So paradox is clinked. Der Schock des Brexit hat uns stärker. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, heads to Downing Street today to open talks on the UK's post-Brexit trade deal with the European Union. Though Britain formally leaves the EU just three weeks from now, the country will remain in the bloc's customs union until the end of this year, as part of a post-Brexit transition period. Boris Johnson has ruled out extending that transition period beyond 2020. Either an optimistic or foolish commitment, depending on your point of view, considering that trade deals between the EU and countries such as Canada and Singapore have taken up to eight years to be agreed. Von der Leyen has made it quite clear that Johnson's timescale is unrealistic. From her perspective, it's not worth endangering the deal for the sake of a deadline. Expect another turbulent year in relations between Brussels and London. And finally today, if you're still feeling as if you slightly overdid things during the Christmas and New Year holiday, well, you're certainly not alone. The number of those taking part in the so-called Dry January movement has swelled in recent years, as have the number of brands offering alcohol-free alternatives, far more sophisticated than the average soda. Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Rimella, explains. Since I went on the wagon, I certain drink is a major crime. We are only one week into 2020, but already even some of the most ardent advocates of a dry January have fallen for the appeal of a glass of wine. If this is you, then not to worry. The notion of giving up alcohol for a month after a period of revelry may seem a noble and healthy one, but is it really? It's definitely not for many French citizens, including President Emmanuel Macron, who nixed a proposal this year for a public campaign over January to limit alcohol consumption. His move was swiftly endorsed by a grateful wine sector that does not want to see its sales drop, especially during a tough year of trade spats and tariffs. Make it another old-fashioned please. Dry January is maybe best aimed at countries with binge drinking problems. But I am from Italy, where we generally take the time to enjoy a glass of something delicious. So why should we have to suffer along with the boozy Brits and the beery Nordic folk? Especially as January is a dark, difficult month in the Northern Hemisphere and getting together around a table for dinner with friends, with the joy of a bottle, just the one, is a tonic for the soul. Punishing yourself never really works. It's time for a gentler approach and a glass of something heartwarming. Leave out the bitters. Just make it straight right. Thank you, Kiara. And that's what's making news. Catch up with our daily bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Thursday. Thursday.